Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan and I'm here with my co-host Gavia. Hello. So this week we are going to be discussing Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, but before we get into that, we have a very exciting announcement related to our Patreon, which is now two months old. Thank you very much to our backers, and especially to Eleanor. We know nothing about Eleanor except that she crazily and very generously gave us $100 this person is like a kind of renaissance patron of the arts, <laughs> funding a dream project for me personally and a nightmare project for Morgan. We had a very special Patreon tier. Most of them are like normal chill tiers, like a bunch of people are paying three bucks to hear many sods or whatever. But the hundred dollar tier was carefully crafted by Morgan because she thought, no one who listens to this <laughs> podcast has that kind of like solid gold bank money. But they do, and that means that Morgan is now legally obligated to rewatch The Phantom Menace and potentially other Star Wars prequels. That means that we are going to be doing a Phantom Menace podcast next week. And before you immediately switch off this podcast to rewatch The Phantom Menace, which I'm sure is exactly what you're all planning to do, <laughs> we are also going to do a DVD commentary episode. So we are going to watch The Phantom Menace together. We are going to just record like a chill, unedited background track of us commenting on the film as it goes. That will go on our Patreon for all of our backers. Is like So if you want to rewatch the movie with us, whispering lovingly in your ears, you may. Um, and then obviously everyone will get to listen to the actual review episode, which will be a normal episode. And I'm hyped about. <laughs> Very hyped. <laughs> Yes. It, oh man, what an experience this will be. I'm genuinely looking forward to it, despite yeah. the fact that I am sure I will be in aesthetic agony for the entire two hour or however I long. mean, the thing is, right, that it's not good, but it's kind of the reverse of Avatar, which is kind of not good in many of the same ways, except Star Wars is the best. <laughs> so it's that perfect combination of not good and also the best. This is my, my technical viewpoint as a film critic. Yes. Also, I mean, maybe you and McGregor. It's what what more can you ask for, really? That's fine. This is for sure your and McGregor's worst performance of his oh, entire career. I remember. I don't and remember yet, this movie well, but I remember that one. He deserves his solo movie. He's perfect. A perfect gem. <laughs> All right. So tune in for that. Look forward to it. If you don't already subscribe to our Patreon and you want two hours of unfiltered content that will be available to you go to our page now to return to a a slightly higher level of culture alfred hitchcock psycho arguably the film that kickstarted the slasher genre it is widely regarded as one of the best films ever made it stars janet lee as a young woman named marion crane and anthony perkins as norman bates an eccentric motel owner Uh, This movie is famous for its plot twist, so please consider yourself warned for 50-year spoilers. If somehow you know nothing about what happens in Psycho, turn this podcast off right now and go watch Psycho. We are going to spoil the entire movie. This is one of the most spoiled films of all time. In every film class I took in college, within around a week or two, we had discussed the entire plot of this film. We will be hitting everything. Go watch the movie. I'm sure that you know the twist. Somehow, Gavia did not, which is I did astounding. Not. 
to me. I knew one of the aspects of this film that is a twist, but the, what I would characterize as the main one, I was unaware of. And this is something that Alfred Hitchcock spent a lot of time and energy making sure audiences did not know about in 1960. So his spirit will be really happy that I managed to achieve this in this, you know, internet era. Yes. So the spoilers are going to begin now. Basically, the setup of this movie is that Marion Crane, the Janet Lee character, is a secretary living in Phoenix who is, through circumstances, afforded the opportunity to steal $40,000 in cash. Which is like half a million dollars in water right. money. Lots and lots of money. And she does this because she wants the chance to sort of run away with the man she is sleeping with who's paying alimony to his wife and she takes the money, she runs, she's very bad at crime, which we will discuss, and she winds up at this creepy motel with this guy Norman Bates, who at almost exactly the halfway point of the movie murders her in the shower. So I took a couple screenwriting classes in college, and this is the movie that gets talked about over and over and over again as like the revolutionary film of Hollywood filmmaking because... Nobody knew that this was going to happen, and Janet Leigh is very famous, and is the main character of this movie for the first half of the movie, very good in the film, and then she gets killed by a twitchy, weedy guy. <laughs> I literally did not know, because it was, like, there's so two things here. First of all, I knew there was a shower scene, because, like, I feel like every single person on planet Earth has seen clips of the shower scene, but I just did not even consider that she was just going to die halfway through the movie and then she'd just be gone forever because she was, you know, deceased. <laughs> and secondly, this kind of bait and switch is exactly the kind of story I constantly want to see because there are so many movies that would be, be improved by having a far longer intro, especially genre movies where they just give you like the basic premise and then plow in. And in this, it's like perfect because you have so much set up and you're so attached to the person who is literally the victim. Like, it's not someone who heroically escapes, and it's not someone who's just, like, a corpse after five seconds of screen time. And the fact that this is, like, one of the most iconic movies ever made, and isn't influential in this one, like, most famous aspect of its storytelling is, like, wild to me. Yes. Like, I've literally never seen a movie that does that, and it's like, why? If every film student is doing this, the main thing people took away from it was, like, we should make more movies where women get murdered in the shower. <laughs> Yeah, obviously, like, that's the thing that people were into. I mean, I'm sure they were, but it is crazy that nobody else does it. There there was some TV show where they, they kill off the main character. I can't remember. But there, were, they, there was something I saw that did something similar. But it's obviously vanishingly rare. The only cinematic equivalent that I can think of off the top of my head is uh, the Derek San France movie, The Place Beyond the Pines, with Brian Gosling and Bradley Cooper. Which does not work. Well, it's right. Like the opposite. Exactly. <laughs> it's like a triptych film, and Ryan Gosling is sort of the first part, and then he dies, and Bradley Cooper takes over. And it's kind of like interesting, but it was marketed that way that it was going to sort of switch from one to the other so it wasn't surprising like this but then also it has this third part that is one of the worst things i've ever seen on film so it's sort of like well it's appalling whereas this you genuinely 
if you were watching it without cognizance of what was coming, as you apparently did, would not have any clue what was about to happen. And then the movie becomes something different and kind of weirder, although it is still following certain genre beats in the sense that it becomes kind of a mystery after that point. Um, One of the things that's really interesting is that the whole first half of the movie is set up around the idea of her stealing this money. And as I said, she's terrible at crime. As we all would. Very realistic depiction of someone who's just not got any experience doing the crimes. (laughs) I love movies, television, whatever, about people who do crime and are terrible at it. I think this is one of the best subgenres. It's, it, as you say, is exactly how real life would be. She is, she does everything wrong. She does every single thing wrong. She, she keeps act- $40,000 in cash in like a torn paper envelope in her handbag and then like swaps <laughs> cars in front of a cop and it's really twitchy. And it's just like, yeah. I was so stressed about the money. The money was the most stressful part of the movie for me. I don't know what that says about me psychoanalysis-wise, <laughs> but I was just like, oh God, someone's going to find the money. Split it up and put it in different parts of your suitcase at least. <laughs> well, this is the thing, is that she dies. Norman, who is extremely good at crime, cleans up everything around the body, etc. Finds this newspaper where she's hidden the money, sticks it in her car along with her body and everything else, shoves it into a lake and then the money's gone and it's out of the story like her sister and this guy she's been seeing like it it comes up again a little bit because of course people are like oh she stole this money you know maybe and someone they're killed convinced her for the money that, like oh if, if, if norman killed her then it must have been so he could take the money and like buy a new motel and obviously right. he doesn't even know the money's there because he just murdered someone for funsies right but it's sort of an inversion of what a lot of other Hitchcock movies are like, which is that they focus on this object or thing known as a MacGuffin. The story functions around this thing, and the thing doesn't actually mean anything. It's just a way for the story to work, which is fine. So my favorite Hitchcock film is Notorious, which is from the 40s, starring Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. And in that one, Cary Grant plays a sort of agent for the U.S. government who convinces Ingrid Bergman to act as a double agent in Argentina, I think, to sort of spy on her, like, German family and their associates, basically, because her family are, like, ex-Nazis. It's post-World War II. And somehow this all winds up being nominally about this, like, gunpowder-looking substance that I think has to, is supposedly has to do with, like, nuclear material. It's never explained. It never makes any sense. It 100% does not matter at all what this thing is. The plot just needs some thing to be there. And it's fine. Like, it all just works. It's the fucking mystery box, whatever, Infinity Stone bullshit. And in this, the money is... The MacGuffin, like it makes sense that she wants it, but it's just something to move the plot forward. And then once she dies, it literally gets drowned in a lake because the second main character is this fucking crazy dude who is not motivated by normal things like wanting money at all. And the movie becomes this totally different thing 
and I, it's just like this total reversion that's really, really structurally interesting. And that I imagine if you were watching it in 1960, that your brain would just have like exploded because this is not how movies function and still don't usually, but particularly then I, I can't imagine the experience of watching it at the time it must have been nuts. Well, he had this whole thing when he was, when he was marketing the film. I think I read somewhere that first of all, like the actors didn't really do much promo for, it, or maybe didn't do any at all, which obviously is unusual. And the trailer was like Alfred Hitchcock giving the camera a little tour of the sets and being like, you'll love my movie Psycho, which is about <laughs> topics that I'm not going to tell you about because that would spoil the story. And he like instituted this rule where no one was allowed to come in late. Cause obviously at that point it was like, people would just wander in and out of movie theaters all the time. And he was like, no late admittance. Because otherwise people would show up and be like, I only saw Janet Lee for five minutes. What's up with this film? <laughs> and the answer is you have to watch the whole fucking thing. Yes. Well, and one of the other sort of interesting things is Janet Lee is really, really good in this movie. And there's something about her performance that like, she's not playing a particularly likable person, which I like. Like, of course, you don't want her to get murdered. It's awful. Her, she steals some money that's not a murderable offense but she's not playing a particularly virtuous character which i think speaks to the movie being a little post golden age hollywood it doesn't have to hew to sort of conventional moral standards anymore she's self-interested but she's not a selfish bitch or a vamp right she's except in the sense that like every woman in a hitchcock movie is a blonde and a corset but you know <laughs> yeah but that's fine but there's something about her acting style that definitely is from that sort of dying era i would say of the golden age hollywood hitchcock blonde like i don't want to say stiff at all because i love that era of movies and some of the greatest actors ever are from that era of movies but there is something about the way that she acts that is very recognizable from that earlier time and then Anthony Perkins is totally doing this, like, rando method thing. I mean, not saying that he was literally a method actor, but the way that he's acting is way more recognizable as, like, modern, in quotes, screen acting. I mean, the way that he's... So it's like, when I was watching it, I was thinking the initial part, which is very surprising if you're expecting going in to see, like, a classy slasher movie, the, 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 the beginning part is kind of almost film noirish because you've got this sort of like morality tale that's, I mean, the opening scene is her having an affair and being all like, oh, we're so troubled about a better, you know, I've been divorced, you know, very, very disgraceful. There was a lot of censorship, censorship stuff going on with this movie because it was so racy, but like, um, and then she steals some money, whatever. But then it transitions into sort of gothic horror because it's the, the, the point where she meets Norman Bates you know, she's driving along the road in the rain. She sees like the castle on the hill, which is his, you know, his spooky house, which is very spooky. It's very Rocky Horror. Um, and then kind of goes in from the cold. So it's like she literally just goes like full Dracula. And then the final, like the latter half of the film is this sort of murder mystery. You know, we know who done it, but it's all about like the kind of the conflict of weirdly, I was like, Norman Bates is kind of sympathetic, not in the sense that his motives are sympathetic, but you're torn between like the equal desire for him to escape because you're seeing everything from his point of view and it becomes really tense. And also obviously wanting him to get caught because he's the villain and he just killed the original protagonist. It's just, yeah, like there's this point where when he kind of drops her corpse into the swamp, 
they have this like really tense moment where you think the car isn't going to fully sink. And obviously, morally speaking, you should be like, well, I hope that he gets caught and the car doesn't sink. But you're actually sitting there on like tenterhooks like, oh, God, come on, sink. God damn it. <laughs> well, I think also part of that comes from the fact that Anthony Perkins is unbelievably charismatic as a performer, but also that every single other character apart from the two main characters in this film is completely like a cardboard box of a person right they're very much like stock characters they're like tv stock characters to the point where it's clearly on purpose yeah there's a towards the end once the sister and the lover come and come to the base motel and figure out that it's probably norman they go to the local incompetent sheriff for help and he is such a pitch perfect stereotype of an incompetent local sheriff it's just like okay right we see where you're going with this one (laughs) yeah so the woman who plays her sister, whose name I should have looked up and who I think I must have seen on something before because I recognized her, is a very good actress and she does a very good job. In, in Vera part- Miles. Yeah, she walks around the motel and sort of looking for Norman's mother and does a really good job in the parts where she's not talking. But anytime she has dialogue, I mean, she's fine, but the dialogue is so wooden that there's not really a lot you can do with it. And... I think you're definitely supposed to find him more compelling and sympathetic in a way than anybody else. Once she's dead, obviously, like she's also very intriguing. And I think that that's really interesting. It was reminded me of sort of conversations we've had about like Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal and other movies of that ilk where you're not exactly rooting for the bad guy, but definitely find them the most compelling. He's sort of cute and boyish. Yes. He has all these boyish mannerisms, but then also he's just like uncool boyish mannerisms, right? right? He's dorky, but in a sort of harmless, sweet way. And then then immediately like the other half is just massive warning signs. Like he's just like, you know, he, he, he invites her in for dinner and it's just sort of that thing where it's like, can you, is he just a dork or is he actually a creep? And then he just goes in this monologue about how he loves to stuff birds. <laughs> he just got all these stuffed birds everywhere. And it's just like, oh my God. <laughs> I mean, also, you know, the, the classic line from this film being, of course, a boy's best friend is his mother, which <laughs> any man ever says that to you, get the fuck out <laughs> right away. That's not good at all. The look on her face when he delivers that is really beautiful as well. She's like, oh, It's a really yes. funny movie. Obviously, some parts of it are funny in an unintentional way. Like, I, I thought this was going to be really serious and I'd have to, like, focus on it really hard. But my friends and I were kind of talking a bit during it and I think it was actually quite a chill, fun experience in some ways. Well, yeah, it was interesting to watch it. So I had seen this once before. I saw it when I was in college, so quite a while ago. And it was at a an outdoor screening at Bryant Park in New York, which they do in the summers. And they're a huge city events. Like, they're a really big thing. And the park is, gets absolutely packed. And I remember we got there deliberately early because we knew this to be the case. It's the only one I've ever been to. And it was really fun. But it was a mob scene. And even though we got there early, it was really hard to find anywhere to sit. And we were pretty far back. And I could hear probably half the dialogue of this film the first time I saw it. And the screen was very far away and was very small. So this was the first time I would say I was seeing it in a in a real way, which was fine. 
But I have seen a lot of Hitchcock. He was so unbelievably prolific that it's probably, you know, a quarter of his movies, maybe. But that's still then a lot of them because he just went on forever and made so many films. And um, this is definitely not my favorite or even among them, I would say. Which is interesting because it's obviously really good. And um, our mutual friend, Caitlin Casiello, who's a film scholar, was just TAing a class on Hitchcock for her PhD and was tweeting about this movie today, which was very serendipitous. And so she had just watched a bunch of Hitchcock for this class. And her conclusion was that this, to her surprise, is the best Hitchcock. And I was surprised to see that because I had just watched this and been like, I think this might be overrated. <laughs> um, and there, it's it was just really interesting for me to think about because when I was watching it, I was really enjoying it, but I had to sort of resist the impulse to check my phone a couple of times. I don't look at my phone when I'm watching movies at home unless it's like a dumb film. Um, and I was interested that I had had that, I was having that reaction um, and this film is simultaneously incredibly tight. Like there's nothing in it that is like driftwood at all. Everything in it is there for a reason. And also weirdly slow in certain places, I think. But I think in terms of comparing it to Hitchcock's other stuff, that it's really, really good, like intro Hitchcock. If you haven't seen any of his other stuff, or maybe you've only seen one or two movies, I would definitely recommend, like, watching this. Or, I mean, obviously you should watch it if you've seen a bunch of Hitchcock and haven't seen this either, but me saying, like, oh, it's kind of slow in places is not, like, a, not recommending the film, but there's a way in which it's kind of a distillation of a lot of his ideas in a very pure way. And then I think some of his other movies get compl more complicated and weirder. And so having seen a bunch of those since watching this in college, it was interesting to go back to this and be like, oh yeah, this is good. But I don't know that this is like my favorite one. And I wonder if that also has to do with the fact that it has been so influential in a genre sense that like a lot of movies have built on this and then done. Well, the shower scene things. is wild to watch. Yes. Because you can read a lot of, you know, interesting commentary on it, but if you just watch it, it's just, it, it just seems really, like, cheesy and bad, because, you know, it's sort of, it, it's, like, effective in the context of the film, but nowadays you're just like, what is happening here? Because the knife isn't connecting, and there's, like, this really small amount of blood and that sort of thing, which just seems because immediately after this there was just this huge rush of slasher movies it just seems bizarre and sort of quaint now it doesn't seem like it's a mortal wound but well, that's that, like a logistical yeah comment. that didn't bother me as much because it was that I mean, it didn't bother me but it was interesting to kind of see that being the most iconic scene and it's something which very clearly now feels outdated although actually overall unlike you i think this may be my favorite hitchcock of the ones i've seen I really love North by Northwest, my other favorite, but of the other Hitchcocks I've seen, I just haven't really got into them. Like I've seen The Birds and Vertigo and like one other, I don't remember. 
we got to do some more Hitchcock. We should do a little. We should we should figure out a way to to do some Hitchcock content on this podcast. Because when I was in How college, do we ourselves to dads. Yeah, exactly. Classy dads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when I was in college, that you have to watch Hitchcock if you're doing any film, obviously, like of course. Um, but we did Rear Window when I was um a freshman, like my first film class ever. We did Rear Window, and I was did not get it. And I haven't seen it since, so I should rewatch it because I bet I would like it a lot more now. And at 18, I was just like, who is this old man in this film? And it's like Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I knew who it was, but I'd never seen him in anything before. And I was just like, what? what is this? And of course, now if I watched it, I'd be like, oh, it's Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and then I watched North by Northwest a couple years later, and I really did not like it. And I'm sure if I watched it now, I would like it more. But as I've sort of gotten older, I've watched a lot more of his movies and have completely become a convert to him being like the the master that everyone says that he is. Notorious is definitely my favorite, an underrated masterpiece. People never talk about that movie, and it's fucking amazing. Vertigo, Shadow of a Doubt is, whew. and then. Rebecca obviously is amazing, although it's sort of like pre-Hitchcock, Hitchcock, and then this one is really good. But there's something interesting about his ability to always make kind of pop movies that are also doing something weird and interesting at the same time. And this obviously is, again, if you haven't, if you're not very familiar with him, this is a good place to start because it is extremely pop. And like, in the traditional sense, like it's very really much low budget, which is interesting. Yeah. It's simultaneously this hugely well-respected kind of art cinema classic that was massively influential, and this sort of almost like exploitation movie thing where it's like sex and violence. We just got past the censors, and also <laughs> cost like under a million dollars to make, and it's in black and white. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like they clearly shot it all on sets. I guess at that point, I mean, he'd already done Vertigo, and a lot of Vertigo actually is shot. Not a lot. They, I, I they... looked it up, because I was like, why is this film so low budget? And the studio was basically like, we don't want to make your stupid psycho movie. And he was just like, I will do it on for no money and fund it myself. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> he I'm used just... a TV crew. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of like the timeline. I think he must have still like been doing a lot of stuff on sets. So it probably wasn't like a weird transition. Well, he was he was making Alfred Hitchcock presents at this point. Yeah. So he would have been doing TV work, and then he yeah. brought the TV crew over to film this. Right. Um. So there's also the final twist, which we have somehow not mentioned. But basically, what you wind up finding out is that Norman's mother, whom he has been referencing throughout the movie and who you hear talking and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the local townspeople say he's been dead for 10 years. Yep. Is in fact, Norman impersonating his mother. Dressing up as her, her corpse is kept in the basement. It's very creepy. It's also very hokey. Oh yeah. <laughs> Cause the twist in the middle one hundred percent still works now, and the twist at the end now seems like the cheesiest, somewhat offensive concept ever. <laughs> but it was actually less because that was the one I 
sort of knew about because you know I guess the ubiquity of psych psycho imagery like I'd seen a clip of the mother being discovered or something but it was actually like less transphobic than I was expecting like yeah. Silence of the Lambs is more transphobic than this well again I, this is what I was thinking of and it actually started you know I started watching it and I had forgotten the last twist and then the second she gets to the motel and looks up and sees this like silhouette of this woman in the window i immediately remember the whole thing it was like oh right i forgot that that's where this movie goes and was like oh god oh no and then as it was progressing i was like this all seems fine this seems okay and i actually think it kind of all works there's even the one line at the end so there's a psychologist who explains the situation. Which is the one bad part of the film. Because like instead of at the end, once they've arrested Norman Bates, they're in the sheriff's office. And then the psychologist shows up and he's like, Norman Bates isn't really here anymore. It's just his mother, which is all the explanation you need. But then he goes in this like long-winded speech, which is not interesting or necessary. And it's like the one part of the film that just you're just like, you should have just removed this. Um but there is like a point in the speech where he's sort of like this character isn't a transvestite. This isn't for sex reasons. He's just like obsessed with his mother. Well, yeah, because one of the cops, I actually don't mind that scene very much, but one of the cops is like, he's a transvestite. And the guy's like, no. And the, what, the whatever line he says after it is like describing transvestites, but the way he describes them, obviously all this is like in quotes, is not particularly offensive for the day and i was no. like oh that's interesting and and then he specifies like that's not what's going on here at all this guy has got other issues <laughs> you know and it's all about um becoming his mother and the final scene is they go into the you know the cell where norman bates is and he's speaking as his mother in his head yeah and is obviously this incredibly edible thing i see i don't mind that scene with the psychologist so much because it is explaining the movie well i think it over explains you know because they could really have kept it down to a couple of lines from the psychologist but it goes on genuinely for like two or three minutes solid re-explaining stuff that doesn't need explained and i think would be clear to the audience you know they just need a couple of lines and i feel like it really breaks down the pacing because you really have by that point got the conclusion and it should just move straight on to Norman Bates in the cell and then the final shot which is the car getting dragged out of the swamp see I think that they're making you wait he is making you wait Hitchcock's the only one making any decision about this um to see Norman like there's a, it probably could be a little bit shorter, but I think the actor who plays that character is quite charismatic, so I didn't mind as much. And I think that for me, that actually this movie is in a lot of ways more interesting to think about than to watch, and that that is basically the thesis of the film. And that normally I would say, like, of course you don't want that articulated, but for some reason I it just didn't bother me. It felt like the movie I don't want to say required it but I don't know it felt kind of a piece of what it was doing and I think what it is is that it really others him 
in those few minutes in a way that the rest of the movie hasn't actually because you do find him sympathetic and like charming is too strong a word but he has that kind of boyish quality which apparently he was cast because I guess he'd done a lot of kind of like cute romance roles before that which have now been kind of not literally lost to time like you could find these movies but he's remembered basically for this um and then the function of that speech is to pathologize him right whether or not you like that that's what it's doing and so then when you go into the cell with him he's fully presented as this kind of like bad thing and the last look on his face in the movie is very frightening it's so good yeah does he get replaced by a skull for a second his face yeah yeah and there's a whole thing with a fly that's that was like the main thing i remembered from this movie was he wouldn't hurt a fly yeah I guess I see where you're coming from in terms of giving that gap to get distance with him, but I think ultimately the actual content of the scene they use is just just brought me out of the film so much. Yeah. It was just really so. I guess if they'd maybe used that five minutes to do something more interesting, I would be more sympathetic. Yeah, I also had not been aware. I was looking up Anthony Perkins after the fact that there were three Psycho sequels in the eighties. Yeah, I did not know that either. And he directed one of them. Yeah. Because the like line in his Wikipedia page is, you know, he did X, Y, and Z, but he's best known for playing Norman Bates in Psycho, and it's three sequels, and I was like, excuse me. And they're not meant to be super bad. I mean, obviously, they can't possibly be as good as Psycho, but I was assuming they'd be really awful, like, straight-to-video things. Apparently, they're okay, like, you know. And then, of course, there is Bates Motel. I was just going to say, there's this, Meant to this, be pretty good. This TV show, and it's sort of funny that, for whatever reason, this is the one... Hitchcock thing I can't there must be something else but I certainly can't think off the top of my head of something well it slots so easily into genre right that's produced this level of extraneous stuff and also if people think of it as a slasher movie it's very easy to sequelize that and be like oh it's Halloween 4 right which is not actually really what the film is doing at all I mean, technically it is a slasher. No, I mean, film, it just, but... yeah, it's definitely, I would not classify as a slasher movie at all, except that it has a character who stabs someone, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel like the one thing is that the the one kind of flaw I have with this, or complaint I have with this movie, aside from the fact that the secondary characters are so unbelievably boring, which again, I think is on purpose, but that I don't think it necessarily works, is that it all kind of hinges on norman being bad with this private detective who comes like he slips up talking to him and i feel like that would not have happened and it's fine because see, the movie i think we have different it. views of norman because yeah. i i wasn't thinking oh he's a criminal mastermind i was thinking you know he's got a fairly cool head in the crisis of being able to hide a body that he's killed perhaps while not in his right mind but that doesn't mean he's like a fucking Hannibal level social genius. You know, when he's having pressure put on him, I found it completely believable that he would crack a bit and not be able to give the right answers. I thought it was completely fine. Yeah, because I mean, it wasn't meant to be a, you know, a really impressive. That's clearly the interpretation of the film. But what I found interesting about his performance was 
the degree to which he is in control of situations, even when he's not fully cognizant of what's going on. So I think the scene where he is cleaning up after the murder is maybe the most compelling scene of the whole movie, except for the scene where they're having, he and Janet Lee are having dinner together in his room full of taxidermy birds. <laughs> um, and there's something about the like his efficiency doing it where you can completely tell he has done this before. And it's really unsettling. And you then find out at the end that he's also like murdered his mother and her her lover because of Freud. <laughs> um, and I was like, that asshole would not have gotten nervous about a private investigator. No way. <laughs> like about this random, random lady. Not going to happen. But perhaps that's just my faith in, in the criminal underworld. <laughs> <laughs> I just I do think that performance is like amazing unbelievably compelling it's too bad that he I mean he obviously did other stuff I'd be curious to see some of it but I have absolutely never heard of him for anything but this film he had a long career I think oh he definitely did I think it just must be odd to be so associated with one thing to the point where like in the 80s decades later he was like well May as well go back to it. <laughs> and Janet Lee didn't shower for many decades because she was traumatized, I believe. Although we should add she washed. Yes. <laughs> no, she did not bathe for many, many years while She just, you know, understandably had some psychological issues after discovering that you are the most famous thing you will do in your life is get murdered while naked. So yep. Alfred Hitchcock had some fun impacts on his actresses. <laughs> He is one of the sort of classic example of a male artist who is just monstrous to women. And yet most of his art is about the terribleness of men and features quite, I mean, I hate the phrase like strong women. It makes me crazy, but that's what is strong, stressed women. Right. Yeah. It's almost like he had some kind of personal insight. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. One last trivia note about Psycho. Do, do you, you know about Gus Van Sant's Psycho? I'm aware of it. Yeah. Gus Van Sant remade this movie shot for shot in the late 90s. And I am so intrigued by this. Someday I'm going to have to watch it. Apparently he did have one creative edition. Oh, so you get to watch out for that. Shall I tell you what it is? Yes, go for it. Masturbation scene. Great. Excellent. Just That's what this film needed. That's very Gus Van Sant. It was totally panned at the time, understandably so, and there are definitely critics now who are sort of like, this is a bizarre and fascinating act of experimentation, which is sort of like, you know, <laughs> okay. But I can't think of many other films which have received that treatment, if any. So the, the hold on the public imagination... Nosferatu, I think. Werner Herzog did a Nosferatu, but it's not a direct... Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, the monster, the, the vampire does look the same though. So yeah, this has certainly lingered more than any of the other Hitchcock films. It's probably the one that's most seen by people. Yeah, because like, it's not fun. People. Yeah, <laughs> most of the others not fun. <laughs> I I just beg to differ. I mean, I don't think there. they're bad. It's just this is the one that is most clearly you can be like, what's this film about? It's about a woman getting stabbed in the shower. Sold. 
I just think that of all the like classic directors, Hitchcock is so obviously entertaining. He made movies for mass consumption. I mean, Vertigo is weird, but a lot of them are. I mean, North by Northwest is not exactly like peas and carrots, you know? <laughs> it's, it's made for the mass audience, I would say. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Notorious is also fun. So is Rebecca. So is Shadow of a Doubt. Shadow of a Doubt is also about a horrible man who might murder people. And there's weird sex stuff involved. It's like there's a theme here going on. (laughs) Okay. We will return to Hitchcock at some point because he's my, my fave. And we've had we've had listener requests for Rebecca, so that that may come at some point down the line. It's, it's very fun. Laurence Olivier is very beautiful. But in the meantime, you can prepare for a very different kind of film experience, which is Star Wars: The Phantom Menace. In a few days, we will upload our DVD commentary, so you can listen along if you want to rewatch, or you know maybe you want to rewatch in a pure environment, so you can really absorb the artistry. Either way, soon. Very soon. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this and that you enjoyed Psycho. You can back us on Patreon. You can find us at overinvestedpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Or you can find us on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye. Bye.